Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True and Beautiful. One of my favorite friends and voices that has joined us here at the podcast over the years is back again. I don't know how many times we've had him on, probably four times now. Um, But he's one of my favorite voices in the contemplative space. Uh, Just um, his teaching and the way he sees the world, his worldview and his writings, uh, you can tell uh, that he is near to the Spirit and has spent time with the divine. And I can't think of a better way to introduce uh, my friend, A.J. Sherrill, now hailing from South Carolina. Um, A.J., welcome back. Thanks. That was quite an intro. And I went <laughs> pretty high and pretty low pretty quickly, like high of like, wow, yeah, I have been on this a lot. And, and we still need to meet face to face, but then pretty low because I'm like, wait, have I have I been with the divine in recent days? Because I feel... <laughs> I feel like I'm in need of that more and more in the world that we live in. And yet, um, nevertheless, it just feels like the rush of life and the stress and the layers of worry and concern just continue to mount up like carbon dioxide in the lungs. Yes. But uh, here we go. Good to see it, or at least good to talk <laughs> again. And someday we will see each other face to face. I will. think you're my best you're my best friend that I've never met. That's right. That's right. That. Yeah, we text, we email, and yet and yet we haven't broken bread together. Um, but uh, the beautiful aspects of technology. Um, so, man, maybe maybe there's some people here that need to catch up on you and your story before we get going here. Um, when you introduce yourself and your work in the world, where do you begin? Ecclesiastical promiscuity. Yes. Yes. Um, so so break sure. that down for us. <laughs> oh, I like to find Jesus in all the great Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. I, I've I've been sort of I'm in an Anglican church. I'm a priest, and I've sort of been on the the a, a ride in 20 years of ministry. From I started, you know, Baptist and went through the Presbyterian frame, and spent a lot of time in non-denominational world, but sort of gleaning from charismatics. But in the last probably 10 years, I've really sort of paid attention most to like um, Anglican liturgy and formation. And so, um, you know, I decided it was when COVID hit time to take the plunge, had a few invitations and um, took one in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm trying to constantly find like living streams of water that are connected to like historic things. Hmm. It's hard to find, like you can find historic things that feel dead and then living things that don't feel connected to anything beyond itself. And um, I have searched far and wide to find what's a what's a historic living thing that I feel like I, I could graft onto. And I found it in a little tribe called C4SO, which is a, a little charismatic Anglican egalitarian, which means pro-women um, sort of outpost here. And it's been um, it's been great so far. Beautiful. C4SO. I mean, you got a lot going on there. Let me tell you, <laughs> they had to boil down to three letters and a, and a number. So, uh, that's awesome. Well, um, and the food, tell me about the food scene. I'm always curious about that in Charleston. I wish, I wish I could say more in well, COVID. Yeah, you've been we, there. COVID. You know, that's true. We're sort of measured when we were living in Grand Rapids and New York, when I pastored there, those cultures have like shut down. And then here it was almost as if no pandemic was happening. Elena and I, my wife, we've always been somewhere in the middle of like, let's be measured. Um, let's not be crazy either left or right. And, um, so we've just been measured. And so we've not been like inside dining. I will tell you this, like the problem with Charleston is that you have to make a reservation to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's like in your hometown, 
you can't just like rock up to a restaurant. Right. You have to make resis because there's so many tourists here. So I look forward to the day where I can tell you we've tried every restaurant. <laughs> I, I can tell you that like Waco, the barbecue here is pretty spectacular. I bet so. so I've been pumped about that. Yeah, yeah. They do the vinegar sauce there. Is that Are you kind of in that territory of barbecue sauce? It is. Yeah. And yet, and yet, there is a place here called Lewis Barbecue that is Texas brisket. I follow him on I, Instagram. Yes, yeah, I do. Yeah, I think you'd be proud of what's happening Very here. proud of Lewis. So, yes. Yeah. I love it. Um, right on. Well, um, you've got a new book that's coming out in the world and um, a great piece as always. Um, I know that we've had you on and discussed these other books. This latest one, Being with God, The Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. Um, this is a, uh, a beautiful quick read for maybe uh, those of us um, that have just kind of entered into the realm of what is this contemplative space that people are talking about. Um, so very needed. Um, but before we kind of dive into this, I guess I'll always begin with this question, like, why this book and why now? Yeah, you know, I, I would say, actually, this was uh, a book that I sort of continued that I started a long time ago and published called Quiet. And that was a very different space of publishing that book in the middle of when I was living in Manhattan, pre-pandemic, like mid-2010s. Um, life was crazy, economy humming, everything. And then the pandemic hit and it shut down. And I already signed a contract to write this one. And I'm like, wow, like, are people going to want to be contemplative? Because like life is almost forcefully contemplative in many ways. <laughs> but I think what we found is though the external noise maybe has gotten quieter for some of us, I think it's only um, sort of um, made us confront our internal noise, which yeah. seems yeah. to be revving louder than ever. So the question is like, what do I do with all that? And how do I not just have layers and layers of stress and anxiety that keep building up. Where can I put that? Mm -hmm. And I think contemplative spirituality is one of the practices that helps us to connect with God in a way, in a way that we can put that somewhere other than ourselves or projecting it on other people. Well said. Um, contemplative is one of those words that I think we, we all learn to describe it, experience it, um, practice it, participate with it in different ways. You've got a few different um, definitions in the book that you give. Uh, you know, one of my favorite definitions is Parker J. Palmer's of, of contemplation is anything that we can do that helps us penetrate illusion and touch reality. That was helpful to me when I learned that mm -hmm. definition. Where, when you begin with like, what are we talking about here? Uh, where, where do you begin with the word contemplation? I like Mulholland's definition where he says that it's the practice of stilling ourselves before God, moving ever deeper into the core of our being and simply offering ourselves to God in totally vulnerable love. And what we find in that is that there is a totally vulnerable love that, um, that meets us in that place that we know as God. Um, I mean, Jesus was the expression of God's most totally vulnerable moment with humanity. I mean, the cross is the mm -hmm. sort of pinnacle of that, of that claim. Um, and that's still the same God that we are encountering today was willing to move toward us in that way. And so I like to tell people to think about their lives in terms of an onion. And we really do live so much of our lives 
like these rocks skimming the surface. So contemplation is sort of allowing ourselves to go through the process of peeling back onions um, layer by layer to discover like that, that God is at the center of that core. If we'll just submit to time and space and um, stillness and silence and solitude, um, all those things are sort of great ingredients to help us along the path, but it's hard, it's still hard for me. It's yep. been a, a decade or more since I've been in this vein. Yep. Yep. You begin kind of breaking down like a lot of our ideas of prayer, you know, I think like right in the intro is this, a lot of us think it's talking at God. Some think it's speaking to God. Some have then been taught that it's just listening for God, but it, if this book had a word, I think it is the word with, because you really drill down into contemplation, just being with the divine, being with God. Um, talk, talk to me about honoring the words of at two and four, but, but really digging into contemplation being these times where we are with God. It, it's, and it's almost like prayer leaves being something that we do and it, it becomes something that is done to us and help me out mm-hmm. if I'm missing the mark on that. Well, I mean, I certainly think that con- the contemplative, um, aim, um, is that, is that we actually realize that we're not the ones starting the conversation. Yes. Yes. Like we're actually the ones joining the conversation. Yes. You and I have talked about that before. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to me where I think about a spirituality that's bigger than what I can muster and create, but something that has been happening and unfolding since the dawn of time that in my lineage and time and space and human history, I get to now join, uh, you know, the, the scriptures would talk about it um, in the book of Hebrews as the cloud of witnesses that we're sort of riding on the coattails or standing on the shoulders of those who have been in a conversation with God that we now get to join that conversation. But I mean, we've looked at, you've talked about four different pivots. Look, we're really in, in the Protestant world, we're, we're good at the first three, which is talking at speaking to and listening for God. So when we say like talking at God, like this is sitting at your bedtime teaching your four-year-old to launch prayers into the cosmos to the sky God that hopefully will receive those prayers. And that's a, that's a foundational sort of way to think about the transcendent God that we're, we're speaking at, you know, and then we're sort of speaking to, which means that as we get older, we can speak to God in a way that we actually believe that there's a dialogue happening. So we might be in the car or we might be sitting in line or we might be somewhere and we're freaked out. And so we feel like there, maybe there's a dialogue available. And then listening for where you begin to ask questions like, what, are, what is my call and um, what's my vision? And Lord, what do you want me to do in this moment where you realize that God is um, in some sense loquacious, that God is, mm-hmm. is a communicator? Um, God spoke the world into existence. And so from the very foundation of the universe, um, we have a, a God that is willing to to um, to use speech in some way, shape, and form. And then, you know, you, we sort of live in those three worlds um, most of our spiritual lives. And that's what we might call the sort of uh, cataphatic frame, which is using our senses to experience God. But there's this other one called... Um, being with God, which, you know, the, the, the mystics would call apathetic, which is to move away from the senses. And it's to say, maybe that there's a language God uses through silence and just through sheer being, um, through just love and a sense of connection that, you know, words are welcome, but not necessary. It's sort of 
communication that transcends words, um, just like lovers would gazing into one another's eyes after years of marriage that they don't even have to use words to know what each other are thinking or dreaming of. Um, cause you're that sort of like mirror neurons, mm. you're that sort of connected, um, and in sync. And, and maybe that's, um, maybe that's what Jesus was doing with the father those 40 days when he ran out of words to say in the wilderness, you know, I like to think that there was a deeper connection going on than just what our, our language, which is limited. I mean, Hebrew only had 8,000 words or so. Um, I think our language has a couple hundred thousand words. And when you think about the eternal reality that we call God, um, that's a really small number to encapsulate the profundity of, of God. And so surely our being with him is, is greater than just the amount of words that we can use to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. In your journey over the last 10 years, um, and there's a lot of different ways that, that one can practice uh, contemplation. Um, something that you just said a minute ago struck a chord with me, that words, words are good, words are useful, but not, not necessary. I think that's what you said. Um, talk to me about uh, what you found on inviting others into the wordless world of contemplation. Um, is, it's, it's a bit bumpy, when you get going, it's kind of like, what am I do? What, what's happening here anyway? This is, you know, shouldn't I be doing something more? Shouldn't I be doing some heavy lifting or saying specific words? I guess hold my hand and the listener's hand, uh, maybe for some folks that this is this is a new idea, and they're moving into uh, a new space and maybe feeling led to it. Uh, kind of those those early days of entering into comp- contemplation and kind of feeling like a fish out of water at times. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like going on a detox where you your body has normalized, um, you know, processed foods for decades. And so your body freaks out a little bit. Hmm. Um, I think we're normalized in the spiritual sense to results and like efficiency and right. immediacy. Yeah. And this isn't that. This is like a long road. Um, it's a long relationship. And so if you're looking for like a quick fix, you know, that's not what this is. Um, so I think that's a big stumbling block for people because, you know, like we want to see results. Like, is it working? These are kind of the questions that people end up asking quickly because it's hard. And then you just end up kind of quitting because it was difficult. And so left best left untried, um, kind of a paraphrase of Chesterton there. (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, I just tell people to like have grace on themselves and like, take it slow. Like, have like a three minute set where you just focus on a phrase for three minutes. You know, I always use Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me. Um, cause that's the most prayed prayer of all time, but it's also a real historic one that has been useful for a lot of people. And it keeps me centered in, in my, um, my distinctly Christian belief of, of Jesus as the Messiah of the world. Um, so I would say go easy on yourself and give yourself time to integrate, um, into this and to know that like these, like a farmer, like these fruits are born long-term, like when they're, when the soil's cultivated. So this isn't, you have to, like, this isn't machinery. This isn't post-industrialism. This is ancient stuff, which requires cooperation. You know, I have, I think one of my favorite things to do here, um, we live in a neighborhood that has marshes and the marshes are connected to the ocean. And so I've really gotten into paddle boarding in this season. So like a couple streets away, um, I'm connected to the ocean in my neighborhood through the marshes. 
and they have these beautiful like um, paths through the marshes. Um, you can eventually get to the ocean that way. And um, what I like about it is that because it's connected to the ocean, it's connected to the tides. And that means I don't get to decide whenever I want that I can just go paddleboarding. Hmm. I have to actually cooperate with the rhythm of creation in order to have the right you know, flexibility in my own schedule and the right tide schedule for those things to come together and to say, I, I don't get to just do what I want when I want in the paddleboard world. I've got to cooperate. And it's like that, I think, in the contemplative frame, like we're being called not to like immediate, to create, to do something quickly and efficiently. We have to kind of cooperate with how God created the universe, which is, you know, around seasons and time and space and patience. And I think that's exactly the recipe that if you're going to get into this world, it requires. And that's that's like a detox to the spiritual world and it stinks at first cause we're just not used to that. Yep. Yep. Well said. One of my favorite parts of the book was uh, on, on absurdity. And I didn't know that the etymology of absurdity actually had connections to the word to, to, to being deaf. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you wrote in there that the sentence that I underlined, we've become comfortable with absurdity because it offers us the illusion of progress and productivity. Um, Talk to me what you're inviting us to um, of naming that which is absurd uh, and, and, and contemplation being the place where we can go excavate some of that. Let it drop it. Let it go. See it for what it is, right? T- penetrate illusion and touch reality. Um, talk to me about that part of the book because I was, I was really taken in by that. Well, I think a lot of people like to talk about like, let's, like the phrase the kingdom of God as the upside down kingdom. But quite frankly, like from God's vantage point um, and from those who have gone before us, the saints, they would say like, well, um, they would challenge us as to who's really upside down in this world. Hmm. And I I think it's the same when it comes to absurdity. Like, I think that um, it's absurd to think about slowing down. I mean, you're a real estate agent. Like, you don't slow down right now. Like, the market has never been hotter. Like, to think about taking these sorts of rhythms and a pace to your day and a health toward not responding and looking at your phone every 10 minutes for updates and contacts and referrals and new clients, all that stuff to actually have a schedule that you live into and are disciplined to in order to not live into the absurdity that we are being conditioned into all the time. What happens over time is when you begin to name that, that, um, that maybe this 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 way of structuring our life and our day isn't absurd. Maybe what we've called normal is absurd. Mm-hmm. And when yeah. you do that, you will be the one that's inevitably seen as the absurd one <laughs> to everyone else in our culture. And so that's the price that we have to pay, I think, to say, let's not just call out the absurdity, but but live into reality. And when we do live into reality, then we to the rest of the world um, that's spinning um, we become the absurd ones. And and that is, I think, a little bit, not fully, but what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are you when people persecute you. Like, blessed are you when, you know, you're living into the upside down kingdom, discovering it's actually the right side up. Mm. But to everyone else, you are now upside down. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's going to be, it takes that kind of conviction and in some cases courage to really live into this way. Because what do we think we're losing? We're losing the capacity to build networks, to yeah. make money, um, to be spectacular, to achieve our goals, et cetera, et cetera. 
all for the sake of realizing like we haven't been with God in like a year and that's what's that going to do over the course of a lifetime and what's that going to do on the relationships that I care most about so I, I think I think that's the sort of absurdity that we need to just name and and be really honest about yeah well said um the word consent uh you know you talk about god meeting us via consent surrender and stillness um when when you talk about consenting to the divine in this space what has that come to mean to you i think total surrender um to whatever happens which is usually nothing (laughs) i mean we usually experience it as nothing there's something happening i mean later in the book i get into some of the brain science where we can tell that when people do pray in this way things are happening things are lighting up and connections are happening neurologically yeah did you have a neurologist with you up there in michigan yeah, yeah i had a great neuropsychologist that taught me almost everything i know about brain science and he's just brilliant and um i mean when you realize like that most of our brains are being lit up by you know the frontal lobe and the amygdala which you know the amygdala has like it's like 12 million neurons in it it's like tiny little almond shapes and our we have two of them these two little things in our brain and i mean that's that's a pretty sizable share of real estate of of neurological sort of action that's taking place. And that's like your fear center. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where you're being targeted by the media when it comes to politics and everything else in life. Cause it's, it's easy access Fight, to you. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's the best way to provoke your vote or provoke whatever it is, the action point, the consumption, the purchase, whatever. Um, but the frontal lobe is the other part. Those two sort of areas basically run our lives. And those aren't the areas of the brain where things like empathy, compassion, things um, get, sort of um, exercised and worked out. And so it's no wonder that we live in the world that we live in right now because we don't actually live in those other places in our brain. In fact, some neurologists say that um, maybe 10% of the world uses that part of their brain every day. Um, So you can imagine 90% of the world is not using that part of their brain today. But that's the part of the brain that gets lit up when you start um, shutting the frontal lobe and the amygdala down, which is why you need that prayer word um, to give it something to do. And it opens up the spirit to really minister and open up parts of your brain that need to come online and, and, and become strengthened in their neurological pathways so that you can integrate those more into your daily life rather than just living from your amygdala. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the amygdala used to be on constant patrol of is there a tiger in the bushes? Uh, yeah. And, and now it's on fire when you check your email. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um. So I thought these four bullet points in the being versus doing section of the book um, were really helpful just as like kind of a a really easy gateway doorway into what we're talking about when we're talking about the contemplative. And you wrote just four simple bullet points, slowing down, paying attention, being still and being loved. Um, Talk to me about any of those, all of them, one of them. Um, this being versus doing has become a bit even cliche in some circles, but it's true, right? I mean, this is textbook Henry Nowen. You know, I am what yeah. I do. I am what I have. I am what others think or say about me. You're, you're excavating, getting to these points of slowing down, paying attention, 
being still and being loved. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Okay. I'll talk to you about that. But you asked, you're the one that's typically asking the questions. I'm then going to end it by asking you <laughs> to talk about the, how you're flipping the script. Like, where is the rub for you right now as a real estate agent in a hot market yeah. in Waco, Texas? Okay. So um, yesterday I'm watching this um, documentary on Apple TV about what happened in nature when the through the year of pandemic when most of the world was shut down. And just came they began alive, to show, I bet. Yeah, they showed the highlights of the animal kingdom of of things that began to emerge and come alive because you don't have all of these ships in the sea all the time and the amount of noise. And I do a little bit on noise in this book with echolocution and noise pollution underwater that's exponentially louder than what we have above water. So you can imagine the amount of imports and exports we have right now with the amount of ship liners, what that does. Um, nevertheless, um, I'm watching the beginning of this and my mouth opened wide because they show this, um, this um, uh, amateur photographer in India and I forget the town, but it's near the Himalayas. And as everyone's like, his, his dad's like, you've got to come up on the roof. You've got to come up on the roof. Bring your camera, bring your camera. And so he gets his ladder, he comes up on the roof and he looks out. And for the first time in his life, he can see the Himalayas wow. from his roof. Wow. And he says to the camera, that has been there the whole time. <laughs> And I've never seen it in my life. And it just, I dropped my mouth to say, you know, this isn't like, yay for the pandemic. That's not where this is going. This is to say that when we slow, mm -hmm. that all sorts of things emerge for us yep. that we never had time, capacity, or resource to see. Yep. And it's sort of like when you live in New York City, which I did for years, like you don't remember that there's stars. And so when you go to Vermont or wherever on vacation and it's 9 p.m., you're like, oh, right, that's right. We live in a cosmos and there are stars all over the universe. In fact, we can't even count them all. And to realize that you can go years without realizing you're part of something so much bigger and more beautiful. So I think that's one of the things that I think we're surprised over the course of time, the things that you do begin to notice. Yep when you um, take a little bit of a different rhythm. Um, but how does that apply in a cultural moment that we're in, in real estate and mm -hmm. the things that you're experiencing on a daily life? So let me play host here. Yeah, for a let's second, go. Cause, let, let's cause go this is it. my fourth or fifth time on the show. <laughs> you can do what you so. want here. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say, um, I, I'll answer it like this. The question isn't, is the divine available? Yes or no? The, the question is always, is, is Ashton available? Um, and I have learned that um, via a multitude of contemplative practices that mine looks like a 20-minute sit in the morning, um, and it is so very clear. The, tra the trajectory of my day um, is contingent upon um, me going to that still quiet space. And you're right. Very rarely it's as if nothing happens. Um, but there is something that's happening there. There's a, there's a detaching from the illusions. There is letting go of, uh, the roles that we, uh, occupy at the form level of the world and, and, and getting centered and grounded at the soul level. Um, 
that's one way. Another way for me is I am, uh, uh, I think, just a bit angsty by nature. And so I have a practice sometimes of either doing one of two things, literally writing every single thing I can think of that I'm grateful for. This is Japanese practice called Nikon. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Um, Where it's just being keenly aware and grateful of the smallest things in your life. Um, and, and then the other one is, you know, even writing some, writing out some of those things that I'm fearful of. And when they become this physical thing on paper and I can see them, you know, how, how rare it is that any of those ever come, uh, and actually become real in the world. And so Mm -hmm. I think for me, a 20 minute sit, a, a physical writing down of where the cup is overflowing, right? Like this just... I'm saturated in goodness, truth, and beauty. And unfortunately, I think when the ego is calling the shots and you're not in the 20-minute sit each each day, you know, for me, I I find that if you get in the car and just head to the office, there is, there's a way, it's it's a different heart. It's a different set of eyes. It's a different um, purpose in the hands that go to work each day. Um, And so that's, that's how I would answer that. Wow. I and think. you've even got like a, a metronome going in the background or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> some slap, some slapping happening. It's, it's me opening I can this hear. pin. Um, there you, go. you know, I, I, I think you nailed something for your audience. You know, there's those who are naughty by nature and then there are those who are angsty by nature. <laughs> I really feel like you if your podcast, <laughs> yeah, if your podcast had another name, it might be something like angsty by nature. <laughs> angsty by nature. Yes. Let's bring that's it back some, to 1993. That's got some likes to it. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, thank you for asking. I don't get questions on here very often. Appreciate that. Um, so talk to me about the difference between mindfulness and contemplation. Um, there's a lot of overlap, but but you do, you know, make it clear to say, hey, we, we're, we're, there's there's a bit of nuance here and we are not exactly talking about the same things. Yeah. So, I mean, I start by obviously giving credit where it's due, like mindfulness, I'm really grateful for, and it's hit the tech sector. It's hit a lot of corporate sector in terms of like, Hey, there are some ways that we can really help people deal with anxiety and process things at a deeper level. Um, and so there's a, there's a place for that. A lot of mindfulness is, um, in, in direct alignment with a more Eastern tradition, which would be around, um, you know, release and let go and some of these surrenders and detachment things. And I think that's part of the process. I think what, what I appreciate about um, contemplation is that Christian contemplation specifically, it's a tradition not of detachment primarily, but proper attachment. Hmm. You know, like the Buddhist would say, we need to detach from our attachments, largely because those attachments are ego. Those attachments are fleeting and passing and to cling so tightly is to waste one's life. And so if we can learn to detach, then we have life in its proper context and we can navigate the world rightly. But I I think in the Christian tradition, there's another layer to that with the presence of the Holy Spirit, where, you know, even Jesus would say, abide in me, that there's a kind of proper attachment that is in that which is eternal and that which grounds our being that is necessary for us to know who we are. So it's not just like, let's detach from all of our illusions, but let's attach to that which calls us the beloved. Because it's there that we're secure and stable and anchored 
for all of the winds and the storms that are going to come through our life that we can stay tethered and not feel like we'll be blown away like chaff. So um, I, I like to tell people that's what's happening with contemplative prayer is we're, we are detaching, but we're reattaching yep. to that which is ultimate, um, that which is most real, that which is most true and beautiful. Um, and so I, I think that's, um, that's the distinctive claim that I think um, th- that those followers of Jesus can make in this conversation. Not to say we're better, you're not, but to say um, Christ has give us, given us another tool of being, of identity, um, which I, I think is very good for me because I spend a lot of my days trying to become someone in my own right. Um, so I, I see those as the difference of reattaching to ultimate source. Yep, yep. Um and you put in there kind of some of this inner noise, and maybe that was kind of how I wanted to wrap up today, because my experience of moving into the contemplative space was first just this crazy aha about how loud the inner noise was. And you write about, you know, comparing where we want to have control, maybe where we are uh, uh, over-consuming. Talk to me about, maybe for some of our listeners that may you know, go on, go down this path a bit and do some study into the contemplative space. Some of that initial, you know, getting your ankles in the water, uh, is this, um, you know, just triumphant awareness of just how loud things are on the inside. And, and, and it, it brought so much of that to me and my awareness when I first started doing some of these things. I mean, I think to name that is a victory in of itself, right? Right. Again, we get back to the absurdity where we're living in such a way that we're not even aware. You know, I opened this book by talking about Times Square um, back in July, I think of, of 2019 or 2018, where the lights went off again in Times Square and 70,000 people stumbled out into the streets with their iPhones to illuminate the path. You know, J-Lo was performing at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, the next page, the next day, the front page was, you know, something around like panic in Times Square, the lights, you know, something like that. But, you know, what's more bizarre, you know, is the question I asked that the lights turned off or that we expect them to always be on. And I think it's more bizarre that we have an expectation that at any point of the day, Times Square lights would be on at four in the morning, at four in the afternoon, at 12 in the afternoon, at 12 at night. And that's the way we really run our lives. We're underslept. We're overworried. We're overweight. Um, we're stressed. I mean, I could go on. Um, and, and I think that we've called that normal. So when you begin to confront some of these things in quiet, um, you're setting up your life to be in contrast. And so all of that inner noise is going to become front and center for you. And the first step in all of this is, is realizing that that's happening and just, becoming aware of that. And so you can't change what you can't name. And so if we're just going to continue to call that normal, then we'll never know that there's an alternative to these kind of lives that we're living. And so um, that inner noise um, to name all that, it's like, you know, this inner interior castle as Teresa of Avila would say. I mean, that's a really great book to pick up if you're looking for something that's going to blow your, blow your socks off. Because she talks about the soul in terms of like, you're not like this house, you're this castle, you're a mansion, and God lives there. But we're busy in like the outer courtyard. We're not even getting into the inner rooms. (laughs) 
So you gotta, you gotta go from room to room. And when you do, you know, and you begin to pay attention, you realize like, wow, that room's a mess. Mm-hmm. And, um, I could either be ashamed about that or I could befriend that and realize like there's something I could do about it. And there's some weeds we can pull. Um, so I tell people constantly in this, and this is what I feel like I'm constantly having to tell myself is have, have grace on yourself. Cause this is hard. There's not much in life that's setting you up for this kind of life. You know, not even the church, right? We don't even have churches anymore that are like, Hey, let me help you cultivate some stillness for a minute. We don't need smooth transitions. We don't need to pray here so that people can get off the stage. Let's just pray and let's be still and people can get off the stage whenever they want to. <laughs> um, but what we need is environments where we're being invited um, to be still and to confront that noise until we can put it somewhere, file it rightly, surrender it, and then move on to find peace and shalom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is awareness the great predecessor to that peace I think and so. shalom? Well, and that's why I'm a big fan of the Enneagram is that it's the gift of self-awareness and how we sort of are motivated to navigate life and the things that we strategize to try to succeed and, um, and navigate the world. But, um, you know, that self-awareness is such a huge, huge tool to name what we don't know because most of life falls into the quadrant of what we don't know. We don't know. And if we can begin to eat into that quadrant more and know a few more things about us and about the world, then it helps us to navigate it with um, a little bit more clarity and wisdom. Yeah. 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 Being, uh, that's a brave place to step into of saying, I don't know what I don't know, but I want to go find out what I don't know mm-hmm. in the midst. And of it's the same. I, I mean, that's the conversation that's pissing off people on the racial stuff is that, you know, people just assume like, I'm not racist. I got no bias and that's offensive. And then you really, you know, if you're courageous enough to step into that, you realize like, I got all sorts of stuff that's, mm-hmm. that's just animalistic in me that categorizes and classifies the world in order to make sense of it. But not all those categories are, are right. Yeah. And I need to revisit that. And that might actually be good for me. And that might be really good for my neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, so being with God comes out October 19th. Is that right? Correct. Anywhere good books are bought and sold, I would imagine. Yeah. If you pre-order it, um, you get a little journal thing that Baker made as well to help you through the chapters. So Okay. Very cool. On Amazon. Well, you guys make sure you go get a copy of this. Um, AJ is always super grateful for your uh, kindness and generosity with our community here and... Um, You've got a seat anytime you want it. We're grateful for your uh, wisdom and uh, insights that you're always sharing with us and super grateful for your friendship. Thanks, Ashton. Grace and peace to you, my brother. Our brother. Chat soon.